Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guests today are Leonard Grob and John K. Roth. Leonard is the Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Farley Dickinson University. John is Edward J. Sexton Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Claremont McKenna College. Their new book is Warnings, The Holocaust, Ukraine, and Endangered American Democracy, which is published by our friends at Cascade Books. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, for Jason. Coming. Absolutely. It's an honor to have you here. Uh, So first, the world has changed a little between the time that we initially scheduled this interview and the present. And uh, holy cow, do we have a lot to talk about. But first, gentlemen, for our listeners who are undoubtedly aware that there is a situation with Russia and the Ukraine, but who may not understand what is going on, uh, could you give us as much as possible a relatively brief background on the conflict. John, why don't you take this initially? Well, when we started writing this book, Jason, uh, Vladimir Putin had not uh, invaded Ukraine. Uh, That happened about a month later in late February of 2023. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lenny and I had to recalibrate the book to uh, include this. And the reason was that we were focused on endangered democracy uh, in the United States and also with an eye on uh, global affairs. And when the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine took place, uh, we sensed, and uh, many others have agreed with us, that uh, this was a further attack on, on democracy that had implications and consequences for Uh, democracy in the United States. So we uh, did our best to incorporate uh, our understanding of what was going on in that country. And uh, we we were focused on the fact that not only was this an invasion of uh, a sovereign nation, Ukraine, but it was uh, intended to be by Putin uh, an attack to destroy a democracy sitting on the borders of is uh, his regime in, uh, in, in Russia. Hmm. And so this seemed to us uh, something that we had to include as we uh, reflected on the state of democracy uh, in the United States and uh, therefore also globally. Hmm. Yeah, I can just add that um, we just could not sit at our computers after the invasion began hmm. without acknowledging what was going on and seeing some points of similarity um, with what was going on in the 1930s in Germany, mm-hmm. um, we saw the grievances that were aired uh, by Russia and uh, the sense that it wanted to return to a sense of empire, mm-hmm. that it felt that the, that really there were Russians in many of many parts of Ukraine. And this struck a, an echo with us of some of the, the, the movements in um, Czechoslovakia and Austria on the part of Hitler. 
Yeah, absolutely. And Lenny, you should add just a bit about the fact that uh, your uh, family yeah. uh, came from a town. Uh, you tell the story. I mean, th this um, is important for our reflections, I think. Yes, I have a kind of personal stake. Um, you know, it wasn't just that uh, from my part, and I, I know this writing this, co-authoring this book was also important to John. Mm -hmm. uh, I... My father was raised in what is today Ukraine. He came to the United States at age 17. But the first 17 years of his life, he lived in a city called Stanislavl, which uh, is near uh, Lviv, what is today Lviv. Mm -hmm. uh, and my father was the oldest male and the only one to come to the United States. The rest stayed behind and all of his immediate family were were murdered during the early years of the Holocaust. Hmm. So um, I grew up with this heritage um, and it made a deep imprint on me. And during a visit to the city, which was in Poland then, today in Ukraine, um, a visit in 1989 and looking for and finding my father's house, the house of my grandparents and aunts and uncles who were murdered, mm -hmm. uh, I decided that I had to study the Holocaust. Yes. So, and then of course, John and I began to look at some similarities of what was going on in the 1930s in Germany and what was going, what is going on currently mm -hmm. in our own country. Absolutely. Thank you and so much. Jason, just a footnote that uh, Lenny uh, could add, but I'll, I'll do it for him <laughs> if it's okay. Sure. While we are writing the book, one day the reports come in that Russian rockets have landed on Lenny's former, his family's former hometown. Mm. So this was also kind of a wake up call, you know, that here in, in, in our lifetime, on two occasions, the town where Lenny's family uh, came from had been uh, mercilessly attacked yes. uh, in ways that that both reflected the intent on the part of Hitler first of all, and then on the part of Putin later to destroy democracy. Mm -hmm. So this was a, one of the one of the personal kind of tie-ins yes. that uh, uh, Lenny brought to our our narrative and our uh, our analysis. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So um, I'm going to ask uh, the two of you over the course of this interview to elaborate on many of the things that you just uh, mentioned first um, and some history about how this book developed um, helps contextualize this. Uh, but a question about the title warnings and how it ties to your prologue. Um, why have a prologue in this book about uh, Ukraine and the Holocaust that leans so heavily on your thoughts towards Donald Trump? John, well, I'll start here. I think the, uh, the thing that uh, had us uh, motivated to write the book was, uh, was, was the following scenario. Lenny and I have known each other for uh, decades, and we've collaborated in writing projects before. And uh, we were looking uh, as the 2020s arrived 
for a project that we could again collaborate on in writing. And we were trying different ideas. Uh, everything was was turning around the point that we wanted to do uh, what we call a dialogical book. That is one where where we share our thoughts with one another, ask each other questions, respond to one another, and advance the uh, uh, inquiry in that way. And uh, one day, it was uh, it was in January of 2022, while we were talking, Lenny said to me, John, democracy is in trouble. We ought to focus our attention on democracy and use our Holocaust training and expertise as a lens through which to view uh, things that are happening in the 2020s. And the, the tie-in to the Holocaust was not that we were expecting somehow in the United States that there were going to be concentration camps and gas chambers and shooting squadrons and things of that kind, but rather that we understood that the Holocaust didn't appear out of the blue. It had a whole context and historical run-up to it. And that took place in the 1930s and um, uh, early on in uh, Hitler's takeover of uh, Germany in 1933 and thereafter. And one of the things we realized that happened that, that led to the uh, genocide against the European Jews was that Hitler was hell-bent on destroying democracy and getting authoritarian control. And he, and more than that, he even used the institutions of democracy in order to achieve authoritarian power in Germany. So we saw in the 1930s, in the run-up to what we think of as the Holocaust, but as causal factors in leading to that uh, disaster, we saw uh, things that were eerily uh, akin to or similar to, not exact replicas, but akin to um, what had happened in the 1930s in Germany going on in the United States. And these included things like uh, taking control of elections, big lies about all sorts of things. Uh, you know, we could, we could go down the list, banning of books, controlling of the educational system, uh, just on and on and on. And uh, so this was where we got the idea of warnings, that history has warnings for us in the present and in the future. Yeah, the title just uh, appeared before our eyes without any efforts on our part. Uh, people, unfortunately, uh, too many people are still sleepwalking in the face of what is happening uh, in the era of Trumpism. And uh, so it was natural for us to entitle the work Warnings. We really want to wake up our fellow Americans as much as possible to the dangers that are uh, so grave at this time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Um, the first chapter in your book is titled The Eleventh Hour, uh, and you begin by quoting an interview between Brian Williams and novelist Don Winslow. Uh, Don Winslow, for those of you who are unaware, is a novelist who writes about uh, narcotics dealers and gangsters and the people who try to deal with them. Um, can you tell our listeners what this interview was about and what is going on here? Well, I was think the uh, person who uh, introduced this idea. I I love to watch uh, 
I'm a news junkie, I guess. I consume it, you know, wherever I can find it. And uh, when Brian Williams, now uh, retired from uh, um, NBC and MSNBC, was hosting the uh, news program that <clears throat> that is late night in the Eastern time zone, but it arrives earlier out on the West Coast where I was watching it. Mm -hmm. The show is called The 11th Hour. It's still still on the air with a different host. And uh, he interviewed Don Winslow and uh, asked Winslow uh, if if he if he Winslow was looking at uh, the American scene with an eye on the clock and uh, the the clock was moving toward midnight. Uh, what time did uh, Winslow think it was in the United States? And just without batting an eye, Winslow said eleven. It's mm -hmm. eleven o'clock, headed toward midnight. And um, Williams uh, picked up on this, but but what what struck me was just the the juxtaposition of the show called the Eleventh Hour, on the one hand, and Winslow's commenting that the time that America was looking at was eleven o'clock, an hour before midnight, mm -hmm. and it was in the context of uh, talking about uh, the. 2020 election that had happened and that was being contested and and where the big lie was uh, gaining traction. And uh, Winslow and O'Brien Williams as well uh, were, were, were concerned. And so we, we thought this was a good place to start because I think Lenny and I resonated to this too, that, that the United States is about one hour away from losing its democracy. And uh, just to add one point about that, um, we don't know what's going to happen with Donald Trump in the courts of law. But one of the things we do know is that in the United States, we are burdened by something called the Electoral College, which allows for minority vote getting president, the presidential candidates to win elections for the presidency. And as, as many commentators are saying right now, uh, the 2024 election is not going to be based on the popular vote in the United States. It's probably going to come down to what the vote is in six, six or seven you know, states where the Electoral College vote will be determined. And the number of voters that may sway the election one way or another in those few states Maybe you know in the hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. So we're very very close on on this as we approach the 2024 elections, and that was the that was the end game that Lenny and I had in mind as we wrote the book. We really wrote it with the 2024 elections in mind. We're well aware that the 2024 elections are not going to permanently decide anything in this country, mm -hmm. but they are going to be decisive for. Uh, the immediate future of democracy in the United States. Yeah, as we, uh, as time has moved along uh, in the almost uh, two years since uh, we began writing this book, um, I would say perhaps we've moved five or ten minutes later than mm. eleven. Uh, I am fearful uh, as we approach the twenty twenty four election in. Uh, you know, less than 13 months, uh, I am very fearful of what is about to happen. 
And uh, so we need to continue to work. And uh, we have several suggestions about resistance in our volume. We, we did not want simply to talk um, abstractly. And so we realized that this is not going to be uh, anything easy to come by just by calling our book Warnings hmm. and writing about it, but that this is a call for ourselves and our readers to act. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Um, you write a little bit about COVID-19 in your book, because how could you not? Um, there is a narrative since much of the United States of America shut down in the thick of the COVID-19 pandemic that Americans don't want to work. Um, I haven't received mail in two weeks in Basalt, Colorado, near Aspen, because there's no one to deliver it. Uh my neighborhood grocery store is rarely stocked because there is no one to work there. Uh, you quote a statistic, and I'm paraphrasing, that more people died during COVID-19 in the USA than during World War II. Uh, my question is, do you think people have lost sight of the fact that maybe there is no one to work because so many people died? Uh, and why is this narrative being swept under the rug in favor of the narrative that the American worker is just lazy or doesn't want to work? Well, I think that COVID, um, COVID was a huge disrupt disruption in people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the fact that so many died is number one, two, three on, on, on the list. Mm -hmm. But ordinary people suffered, and those who suffered most acutely were the underserved in in our country. Um, those whose socioeconomic status uh, was more easily hurt. Um, they were the ones that had to go out and run the trains and the subways and keep things going. Um, so the divisions between the haves and the have-nots in our country was, a, a, a light was shined quite brightly on that during during the period of of COVID. And I think we have not yet recovered from the shock of of COVID. Um, it's almost in my every day every day it seems to me that that I recall how it was just two, three years ago. Um, and uh, so I think that there is some disruptive force that has not yet weakened sufficiently to put us back in time to prior to February of, of 2020. Jason, I, you've raised a really important question here and it's immensely complex, but I think that one of the things that is putting American democracy to the test is the, uh, the broad economic condition and sensibilities about it in the United States. We know that uh, one of the attractions of uh, Donald Trump was that he was able to tap in to uh, frustrations and uh, uh, levels of discontent and uneasiness about people's sense of where, where the country is going and what their place in it is. And we continue to see that as uh, interest rates rise and inflation seems to be 
know, coming down, but it is, hasn't been tamed altogether. We see it as people, you know, uh, see the price of gasoline advertised uh, every, every time they pass a gas station and the prices are still high. And there's, uh, there's uneasiness in the country about what the future holds. And this uh, affects our confidence in democracy, I think, because it's the question of, well, is, is, is government working? Is our system working? And in, in some cases, this opens up the appeal for a kind of authoritarian populism of the kind that we've seen uh, represented by Donald Trump and, and his followers. The challenge that it poses to, uh, to people who want to support democracy is we have to work hard, harder than we've been to make it actually work. And um, one of the things that, uh, that Lenny and I have, have uh, elaborated on in the book is how do we make democracy work? And our answer is basically by practicing democracy, mm-hmm. by participating in it, by, um, by doing things like voting and supporting public libraries and buying banned books from bookstores, like the, like the one you work with. And uh, do, these, these are small things, but these are the granular qualities that uh, distinguished democracy and that make the difference between a democracy that is kind of in failing health and and one that can be more robust. Now, if I could just add, I think it also, the pandemic also uh, brought into um, a bright light the notion that there are those who believed that freedom for me was crucial rather than that we all have rights, that we're all interdependent. Mm-hmm. We seem to have split even um, slightly more broadly than before when those who refused um, vaccinations um, said that, again, government uh, is our enemy, that government control is paramount without um, understanding, in my view, to the fact of how interdependent we are, and that if I do not wear a mask or if I refuse to be vaccinated, it is going to hurt another. Mm-hmm. So the divisions, which were already stark prior to the pandemic, I think were uh, brought into uh, into the open more firmly. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, back to Ukraine for a moment. Uh, In an interview that you quote between Ezra Klein and Ukrainian philosopher philosopher, uh, Vladimir Yermolenko, sorry if I'm butchering that name, um, in 2022, Yermolenko says, quote, the meaning of things has changed. Uh, A window is no longer a window. Light is no longer light. Uh, What did he mean by this? Yeah. John, you... Uh, I I happen to hear uh, Klein interviewing... uh, Malenko, uh, who is a philosopher, and so my ears perked up because Lenny and I are both philosophers, so I was especially interested to hear what the uh, Ukrainian uh, thinker had to say, and I was so taken by uh, his almost poetic language in describing what the 
uh, Russian attack on Ukraine uh, had had produced. And uh, as he was reflecting on the rockets that were landing on Kiev and, and other Ukrainian cities, um, he illustrated the way things had changed by saying that something that we take for granted, like a window, a, a looking out a window could be a death sentence because uh, a, you know a, a, a shell or, or shrapnel or something might come flying through the window you were looking out and kill you or kill some member of your family or someone you love. And uh, so this imagery struck me uh, and, and the takeaway uh, for me, it goes back to a point that Lenny made when he said he thinks that in some ways Americans are still kind of sleepwalking through things more than they should be. It took me back to the point about taking things for granted and, you know, Yerwilenko was saying, you can't take a window for granted anymore. It isn't just a place where light comes in or where you can look out and see, you know, what's going on. It, it, it can be the place where you die. Mm -hmm. And the change of light might be that instead of seeing sunshine, you see the flash of, a, of an explosion and you're dead or your family is dead. So um, one of the things that Americans have, have tended to do is to take democracy for granted. We, we, have, we have been taught we, and we have believed that our institutions are strong and that they will protect us and save us and that we can have fair and free elections and that the people who go to represent us in state houses or in the White House will, will in some basic way tell the truth and uh, serve the interests of the people and uh, take care of democracy so that we don't have to worry about it too much. And now all of that has gone out, out the window in effect. And uh, this is where we are in a situation that we use the phrase endangered uh, democracy to, uh, to capture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Things are not what they were. I mean, even in terms of friendships have been strained. The polarization is so great, even within families. You can't take for granted now that friendships are friendships and family relations are not necessarily such that there is um, a, an attempt uh, at finding mutual understanding. Um, one of the reasons uh, John has alluded to this already, that we included uh, dialogues in, I think, five of our chapters is that we wanted uh, to illustrate democracy in action, even though John and I might not have felt exactly the same on issues. Mm -hmm. We were able to model a kind of dialogue that we hope uh, will return. Right now, I don't see much dialogue between those who are adherents of Trump's values to Trumpism and those who are not. Uh, and uh, this is something to grieve about. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Listeners, we are going to take a brief break here for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with Lenny Grob and John K. Roth.
Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm Audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. I'm back with Leonard Groff and John K. Roth, authors of Warnings, The Holocaust, Ukraine, and Endangered American Democracy, which is published by our friends at Cascade Books. Um, You have a chapter in your book titled Philosophy, and I am just hoping that you can let our listeners know how the format of your book is influenced by Socrates. Oh my goodness, when we are uh, talking of how valuable democracy is and how how frightened we are mm-hmm. at the endangerment of that democracy in the United States is experiencing at present. Um, we see philosophy and democracy as uh, codependent. Um, Democracy is rooted, it seems to me, in um, not saying I have all the answers, that my assumptions are the assumptions, but rather asking why, questioning myself. Um, I am accountable to others and I am accountable to myself for rethinking my assumptions. And this is Socrates' uh, gift that he has bequeathed uh, to us, among others, but Socrates uh, is a primary voice in this regard, um, that we have to ask that question, why? And you may recall, um, Jason, having read our book, that there was an example um, in which Primo Levi, the the Italian chemist who was imprisoned in Auschwitz mm-hmm. uh, recites that he had in in the mode of starvation and thirst, he saw an icicle out a window of his bunker and he went to open the window to grab the icicle so that it could quench his thirst. Mm-hmm. And a guard said, uh, shut the window immediately. And Levy asked, why? And the guard replied, um, here is kind varum. Here there is no why. And it seems to me this is the antithesis of democracy understood as undergirded by philosophy. Jason, uh, just in the last few days, I was uh, reading some poetry and I came across a poem by uh, one of the great Israeli poets. Um, um, And there's a line that uh, I remember from the poem I was reading uh, that's that's appropriate here. Uh, The poet said, uh, the place where we are right is is barren, is 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 void. And uh, what, what I think the poet is suggesting here is that when, when human beings 
think they know all the answers, that when they think they're right and that no other point of view should have any standing or no other perspective should be respected, then you're in serious trouble. And this was the genius of uh, Socrates as uh, Plato created him as a character. Socrates confronted anyone and everyone and all he did was ask them questions. And the, the point was to draw people out, to get to first get people to say what they thought and then to kind of probe and ask, well, why do you think that? And what evidence do you have for why you think what you do? And, and it was fine, let the answers come, but keep the discussion going by you know, continuing to, to ask questions with the idea that eventually you know, inquiry would take you somewhere where you weren't right in the sense that the poet had it, where things there in the end up destructively and barren, but where a, a thoughtful, wise kind of reflection was taking place that might open up a better way than you would have had if you just stuck with what you thought was right at the, in the first instance. Yeah. We see something like this going on, I think, presently in. American politics at its best, and we haven't we haven't mentioned it, but but something like this is happening also in uh, in the Middle East. I think where in uh, late October of uh, 2023, we are also facing um, severe world problems that uh, uh, weren't on the on the table when Lenny and I were writing this book. Things keep changing and. The world doesn't stay the same. And, and for that reason, the importance of thoughtful inquiry is increased, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Um, we hit on this a little bit earlier, uh, but I now want to ask you to elaborate. You mentioned in this book um, that Trump is not Hitler and Putin is not Hitler. Uh, you compared Trump uh, to Mussolini. Um, but you mentioned the three of them in the same paragraph over and over again in this book. So for our listeners, can you draw a line from Hitler to Putin to Trump and tell us how they are alike and how they are different in your eyes? Wow. Yeah. John, you want to jump in first on this? Well, I'll, I'll go first. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the thing that we see that uh, that makes them at least cousins of one another mm -hmm. uh, is their uh, their disrespect for democracy. And uh, a second factor that looms really large uh, throughout our whole account is their uh, utter disrespect for truth and their uh, deep commitment to uh, lies to advance and, uh, and uh, underwrite their, their power. Uh, now there are many many differences. I mean, I, I Trump uh, Trump is not uh, genocidal. Uh, at least uh, he hasn't shown himself to be that way uh, yet. Uh, Hitler is definitely was genocidal. There's been there's strong arguments to support the idea that uh, Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine has genocidal qualities attached to it. Uh, 
But the thing that unites these three as kind of uh, members of an extended family is their authoritarianism, their disrespect for truth, their uh, uh, use of, of big lies to uh, help control things, and their uh, complete contempt uh, for uh, for de democracy, the rule of law, and uh, its uh, its institutions, even though, and this is something that is also important for us Americans, these uh, authoritarian leaders are not uh, above or beyond using the institutions of democracy to um, sustain and, uh, and strengthen their authority. So there may be, you know, elections in Russia, there, there might be uh, elections in a place like Hungary where Orban is the authoritarian leader, but the elections are all you know, used to, uh, to add support and strength for uh, the leader. Yeah. yeah, I would just add uh, to all the good things that John has said, that we were very careful from the beginning uh, not to make facile analogies. Mm. Uh, and that's why we have stressed that uh, we are not saying that Trump is Hitler or or Putin, but they are in the same camp in yet another way. Uh, in addition to what John has said, um, they play the politics of grievance. This is populism. Um, the Trump base uh, comes from those who feel that they have not gotten what others have gotten. Uh, they are especially um, um, talking about the, the privileged on the East Coast and the West Coast, the, those who are college educated, those who have. And because of the rapid demographic changes, um, they have found themselves not in the position of living the American dream as easily as the um, so-called privileged ones. And Trump has played on this mm. and Hitler played on it as well. Um, so this is another likeness. Um, this is what populists do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much, gentlemen. To ask you to elaborate uh, on, on part of the concept that I think that you're hitting at, I want to talk about education. Um, as someone who is a former educator who would love to be a current educator but cannot afford to be an educator, um, and uh, as someone who moved to this very specific area of the country to get my young son into a better education, uh, educational opportunity. How do leaders, uh, some of which we have mentioned and they're like, use education or lack thereof uh, to control a populace? And are we there right now in the United States of America? Wow. I mean, I, I don't think we're there, but there is a continuum. Yeah. And we, uh, American education is somewhere on that continuum, not in the place where we hope that it should be, will be. Um, we are, we're talking about openness in the classroom. We're talking about the classroom modeling democracy so that we're not just teaching it, but people are living it in the classroom. That democracy needs 
uh, uh, to be uh, illustrated in the lived in the classroom. Um, I'm not sure how good um, American educators are, uh, teachers in particular, of, of letting go of uh, senses of authority which are not rooted in their knowledge and uh, skill sets. Uh, I think that um, the Nazis and the so the Russians are using the classroom as a mode of control. Um, they are trying to turn out a product. And uh, I know, for example, that in the Russian schoolrooms of today, um, all that is taught is how Ukraine is really Russia. There is no Socratic dialogue from what I understand. And certainly um, in the 1930s in Germany, um, students were in effect brainwashed about uh, Nazi supremacy. So um, we have to work, education is key. If there is going to be fundamental change, and if we are going to strengthen democracy in the most meaningful way, it has to start with parenting and then with schooling. I think everyone in the in the political spectrum, ranging from um, people who are supporters of democracy uh, on the one end and uh, authoritarian leaders on the other, understand that uh, uh, influencing and if, if possible, having uh, uh, some control over key institutions is essential. And as Lenny has suggested, every authoritarian uh, regime understands that one of the key things it must do is control education, which also means uh, control uh, journalism, control uh, books, control uh, uh, media of various kinds. I mean, because all education doesn't always just take place in a classroom. It's it's public. It's 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 out in the streets. Likewise, uh, democracy uh, people who support it understand that uh, institutions of various kinds are essential for uh, supporting democracy, and a, a, a school system that is. Uh, responsible in the way that Lenny has described, a library system that is public and accessible and uncensored and that does not uh, have, you know, citizens uh, empowered to ban the books that are held there. Uh, these are also important uh, uh, factors in determining whether you have a democracy that's endangered or one that, one that is robust. Uh, it's interesting to me that uh, uh, Trump and his followers have instinctively understood that their future depends on controlling of schools. And so school board elections have become critical places nowadays in the United States for um, exercising democracy, voting in school board elections, which you know Americans have taken for granted that that people who ran for school boards would, you know, have the best interests of of, of uh, 
children in mind and would be operating in a way that was kind of in general supportive of democracy. Uh, but today in the United States, uh, uh, school board elections are being contested as a part of cultural warfare that is integral to the question of whether democracy as we have known it will survive in this country. Yeah, and I, I will say also that, um, of course, education is broader than schooling. I think the media have an important role to play. For example, booking uh, is uh, gives rise to exercises in democracy in the sense of the free exchange of ideas. Mm -hmm. And we need more of this because we know that the media, I'm talking about Fox News and, and others even, uh, more extreme than Fox, have educated uh, uh, so many of Trump's followers. Hmm. Um, I once had an occasion in a dialogue group to talk with uh, someone who uh, is a Trump supporter, and her ideas were something that I was not at all familiar with. They had all come from Fox and other media outlets. And I was, that really, I, I, I knew it, but experience it, hearing her say things that were totally, you know, out of the blue, they were, they were lies. And um, when I asked her how they could be supported, um, she referred to the, uh, the media and especially to television. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I don't think I need to say this for the listeners of this uh, podcast, but rhetorical education is important. Learning how to vet your sources is important. And um, going to, to multiple news uh, outlets just to see what everyone is um, saying out there is is important. Um, gentlemen, you write about this in your book a little bit, uh, but I want to to give you the opportunity to elaborate for our listeners who may not be um, thinking about this distinction. What is the difference between a democracy and a constitutional republic and which one do we live in? Well, there's pure democracy, which is, uh, you know, just where, you know, you keep asking people's opinion or vote and you, you uh, sum up what the, what the, uh, majority is, and, and then that's the rule that goes into place. Mm -hmm. uh, for good reason, uh, people have long been skeptical about that kind of democracy because it, uh, it, may, it may violate uh, the rights of people, especially people who happen to be in, in a minority. Uh, and that, that can lead to injustice and to um, all kinds of uh, unfortunate consequences. So the uh, the American system, as you pointed out, is uh, a, it's a constitutional democracy by, by which we mean there's actually a written document that governs uh, the democracy that we have. There are some countries in the world that that are democracies, but they don't have written constitutions. They operate in a different kind of uh, tradition or. Uh, or uh, deciding uh, thorny questions. We have constitution and uh, laws that are enacted that have to be uh, harmonious with the 
constitutional provisions. That's why we have courts that decide things. Of course, all of these things are, are fallible. They're, they're, they're not uh, perfect. They can be subverted. They can be um, turned in directions that, uh, that undercut uh, uh, democracy. But uh, the, the commitment that we have made in the United States is to uh, do our best to abide by uh, constitutional provisions that uh, establish and protect uh, a democratic form of government, government that is also a republic, which is a, a situation where in, in our case, we have different states that have prerogatives as, as states. And we try to make this work. It's an ongoing process and a struggle so that the uh, interests and uh, rights and uh, uh, values that we defend as Americans are supported. So it isn't a pure democracy by any means in the sense that, you know, we just look to see uh, who who uh, wins the most votes, and that's the that's the way things flow. It's it's based on uh, the rule of law, on uh, representative uh, government, where we elect people who serve in the government uh, to uh, advance the interests of their constituencies, but also the the well being of the of the nation as a whole. I think one of the, the things every American uh, would do well to read, and I even recommend reading it out loud, as I used to do with my students, is the preamble to the Constitution of the United States, uh, which is a beautiful paragraph, and we don't uh, we don't fulfill it in our everyday lives, uh, but it's 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 aspirational in a in a noble way. I think that uh, we try to to make a more perfect union out of our states and our communities and our individual lives. Yeah, aspiration is critical here. Um, we have learned that our institutions, qua institutions, don't necessarily guarantee that democracy will continue and be preserved, but those institutions bequeath to us uh, tasks. They are, uh, there is aspiration that is manifest in them and it is a struggle, an ongoing struggle for us to live up to the best of those ideals. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much, um, gentlemen. Finally, uh, this book started as a book about American democracy. Uh, it is also about the Holocaust and the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of this interview, since we scheduled this interview, we now have a conflict uh, between Israel and Hamas. Um, do you think we are heading for a third world war here, or can we slow this train down before it derails? Wow. Um, I do some work in this area, actually. Um, I think, first of all, it would be just speculation at this juncture yes, of course for me so. to say whether the war will be widened or not. Mm -hmm. you know, hopefully, uh, it already there is enough death 
and enough wounded to uh, to grieve. Um, I will say that um, it is uh, another test that humankind is facing. Um, will ideologies win out? Um, will there be exchange between people where they regard as um, inviolable the face of the other, um, where othering, uh, which we see happening and we're seeing the the thousand death in the thousands occurring as we speak in the Middle East as a result of this othering. So um, I think that what we're aiming for in this book and what concerns us as Americans um, to preserve this sense of respect for the other. Um, this has not been heeded heated in, in the Middle East. And um, it's a, another set of warnings for us. I think uh, I've been thinking about this question, Jason, uh, leading up to our discussion today. And um, I, I would have to be cautious about this, but, but I want to suggest that it's worth thinking about the fact that uh, what has happened in, in the Middle East may also be the result of endangered democracy. I think that Hamas uh, is smart and that they could see that the democracy in Israel has been in some difficulty and that Israel was divided and uh, perhaps more vulnerable because of that. And at the same time, it would have to be said that uh, Hamas is anything but a democratic you know, reality. Mm -hmm. uh, the evidence seems to point toward its being a, a, a hugely authoritarian regime, which uh, has not served the Palestinians in Gaza well. So uh, this this is also uh, something that, as I say, I'm being cautious about it, but I think there is a connection between book that Lenny and I have written, uh, it, which tries to defend democracy against uh, lies and authoritarianism. Um, I, I think the book, uh, though it doesn't speak about an event, the events that happened after it was published, it, it has some relevance for thinking about those events. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for your time. And thank you so much for writing this wonderfully thought-provoking book. Listeners, I've been speaking with Lenny Grob and John K. Roth, authors of Warnings, The Holocaust, Ukraine, and Endangered American Democracy, which is published by our friends at Cascade Books. Lenny, John, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for, in, for inviting us. Jason, your questions have been challenging and... Yes. Uh, Lenny and I have learned uh, from you as we've tried to respond to your queries.
Absolutely. Once again, I would like to thank Leonard Grob and John K. Roth for joining me. Copies of Warnings, The Holocaust, Ukraine, and Endangered American Democracy can be ordered at www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.